As you're getting settled there, go ahead, pull out your Bible, open to the book of 1 John. If you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like one, the ushers are already coming down the aisles. Just raise your hand once you have the word in front of you. Very special welcome to guests, visitors, anyone who's new to our church. We're so glad you're with us. And actually, today we have a, a luncheon that we're doing called Introducing River West. And uh, many of you have already RSVP'd for this, so we know you're coming. But if not, you can just show up. It happens right after church, 1245, right down the hall in the student ministry room. And the rumor is that there will be queso from Cadoba there. Yeah, because that's how we treat newcomers at River West Church. So show up for that. I'm very glad to be with you today. Uh, last weekend, my wife and I, Kathy, my beloved bride, we got a chance to go away for a much-needed weekend away together. It was awesome. We left our teenage daughters behind. We entrusted them with the pets and with the house because we are people of great faith. And we got on an airplane and we flew to the Bay Area and we had a romantic weekend. It was awesome. We had a family event down there, but then we spent two days in the city and we just played and it was romantic. It was life-giving. It was wonderful. We had incredible meals. We went to the Museum of Modern Art. We spent five hours there, five hours. Okay, one of us liked that more than the other. But I was very well behaved in the process. And we did all of the iconic touristy things. We had dim sum in Chinatown. We drove down the windiest road. We walked along the pier and had caramel corn and we took a stroll through the, the Golden Gate Park. It was awesome. And here's what happened. I witnessed over the course of that weekend, God doing something in my relationship with Kathy. He was refreshing our marriage. You know what I mean by that? It was like God was just breathing a little bit of life back in. And it's not that, the, it's not that we were having problems, but you know how sometimes you get into an experience and you discover as you're having it how much you actually really need it? And as we spent time together, it just felt like there was this renewed refreshment and joy in being married to one another. And one of the ways that I know that our relationship is solid and that there's lots of intimacy is that we laugh together. We just laugh. And Kathy has the most contagious laugh. I love it. It brings me great, which is why I'm such a buffoon, you know, because I'm trying to make her laugh all the time. And when she's laughing, I know things are really great. It's so cool. And here's what happened. I got on the airplane. I'm flying home. I've got Kathy's hand held. I've got my Bible open. And I'm thinking about the text we're going to look at today. And I had a little reflection about relationships. And the reflection is this. You can tell when a relationship is solid. You can tell. There are signs. In my marriage, one of the signs is Kathy is laughing. If she's laughing, I can tell things are good. Right? One of the ways. You can tell in your relationships if they're solid. It's not just marriage. You can tell in your relationships with a friend or one of your children. And even you can tell in your relationship with God. There are signs that the relationship is, is solid, that, that, that there's intimacy, that, that, you're, that you're doing well. 
That's what John wants to talk to us about as he begins chapter 2 of this amazing letter. Will you look with me? 1 John chapter 2. We're off to an amazing start in this amazing letter. And today we have six verses that are so rich, we're not even going to scratch the surface of six verses, but we're going to do our best. Will you read it with me? Here's what John says. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I love John. I love John because he's so down to earth. You know, John talks about things that are a part of your actual life, your actual lived experience. He's not up in the clouds talking about deeply philosophical, theological, abstract things. John's down on the ground at street level. He says, I know what it's like to live in this world, to try to follow Jesus in this world. And I want to I write to you about those things. And that's why I love this letter. And I, I know some of you love it too because you've come up and told me. I've had so many people come up and say, I'm so glad we're studying 1 John. This is like my favorite book. Two weeks ago on Sunday night, a woman came up to me and she looked super intense. I thought her eyes were going to blow out of her head and she grabbed me by the arms and she got in super close. She broke the personal space barrier. Do you know what I'm talking about? She just got in there and she was like, 1 John has impacted my life as a Christian more than any book in the Bible. And I was like, wow. And then she said, I, I kid you not, the very next thing she said was she looked at me and she said, don't mess this up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't mess this up. I love John because John is a pastor. And John knows what it's like to try to follow God in a broken world. And so he writes about that. He writes about the joys. He writes about the challenges. And what he wants to talk to us about in these six verses is a question that every single Christian will ask at some point in their Christian life. And the question is this, is my relationship with God genuine? Is it solid? Is it real? Is it the real deal? And how could I know? How could I come to know that my relationship with God is genuine and real and solid? Every Christian at some point is going to want to ask and answer that question. It's what theologians call the theme of assurance. Assurance. And we get it. In, in the relationships that matter most to you, you're looking for assurance. You want to know, is this solid? When you're first dating someone, remember that? 
Some of you are in it right now. It's the beginning of a romantic relationship. Young people are always asking the question, how can I know that he's the one? How can I know she is the one, right? In my premarital counseling, I'll often have the couple on the first session together, I'll say to them, take me back and tell me, take me to the moment when you knew she's the one. Tell me the story. Take me to that moment when you knew he's the one. And I hear great answers, wonderful things. We get this. We want to know, God, is my relationship with you solid? And is there a way? Is there a way that I could know? Is there a test? And John says, actually, yes. There is a way to know. Look at verse 3. The heart of a pastor, John says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. John says, do you know what, Christian? God wants you to have assurance. He wants you to live in this world with a sense, my relationship with God is solid. It's genuine. That's John's heart, but it's John's heart because it's God's heart. This is what God wants to do today, this morning in your life. But there's a, there's a flip side to the coin that I have to talk about for just a minute. Because John is saying, I want, I want genuine believers to have assurance, but I also recognize that there could be a person who actually doesn't have a genuine relationship with God, but they think that they do. And it would seem like it would be important for that person to come to the realization you know, God is just kind of a hood ornament on the life that I really want to live. But I, and though I, though I, I think I know God, or maybe I'm even claiming that I know God, there's no evidence that I actually have a relationship with God. And John says, well, because I love you, I would want you to come to the realization of that as well. It's so wonderful. So he asks the question, what is the test? How could I know? Well, it has to do with a thing that I want to call alignment. John says, here's how you can know. Is your life in alignment with the heart of God? Is your life aligned with God's heart, God's will, God's word? He basically says the same thing over and over and over several times from verse 3 to 6. Will you look at it? Here's what he says. By this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. You see the repeated word? It's the word keeps. I don't know if you saw that. Look in your Bible. He, just, he keeps saying keeps. Does he, do you keep God's commandment? Do you keep his word? It's a super interesting word. The word actually means to watch over something, to guard it. It's a heart level word. It's, the word doesn't just mean um, external obligation or obedience. It's not just something you do haphazardly or reluctantly or out of obligation. John's describing something where you, your heart longs for this. You long to know what God's will is for your life and you long to 
keep that will in, in your daily living. John says, that's how you know. If we were hanging out and I said to you, I'm kind of a health nut. Like I care a lot about what I put in my body, how I fuel the body, you know. You are what you eat, and I'm, I'm making much about how healthy of an eater I am. And then you got in my car, and there were Taco Bell wrappers all over the car, right? You'd go, there's a disconnect here. Seems like your desire is for queso, you know? Maybe you should go to IRW. But, but, if you, but, but you would think, I'm not seeing alignment with what he's saying and how he's living. And John says, this is how you know that your relationship with the Lord is solid. There's this alignment. But there's something else going on in this passage, and it's extremely important. There are three words in these verses that require special attention. And I'm going to put these words on the screen, and I'm going to have you write them down, and I'm going to ask you to master these three words. You already saw them because they stuck out. To you, the three words are advocate, propitiation, and walk. Those three words are really important in this passage. And we need to take some time with them today because they need to be defined, they need to be understood, they need to be mastered. The first thing I want to point out is that in the context, all three of these words have to do with Jesus, not us. And this is critical, okay? Listen to what I'm about to say to you. John cares about assurance, and when John starts talking about assurance, he immediately focuses on Jesus, not on you. Because John knows the key to assurance has everything to do with what Jesus is doing in your life. And what you do is just a response to his grace and his work. Isn't that a good truth, River West? John says, do you want assurance? Then learn what Jesus is doing in your life right now. Here's another slide. In Christ, God has given us three things, okay? He's given us a mediator who speaks for us. That's the advocate. The second thing he's given us is a substitute who took the full brunt of the punishment for our sins. And that's, that's the word propitiation. And the third thing God has given us is an example that we can imitate in this life. And that's what he means by the word walk. And you say, well, why would God give us these things? Why would God do this? Because River West, he loves us. He's given us these things because he loves us. He wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship with you that's solid. A relationship where you always know God has a hold of my life. And so he's given you these three things. And so this morning, in the time that we have together, we're going to drill down on each of these three. And we're going to find that if you can wrap your heart and if you can wrap your mind around these three things, your assurance and your relationship with God is going to grow and grow and grow. Okay? So first, we have an advocate. 
John says in verse one, will you look at it with me? He says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So John is saying, my heart is that you won't sin because sin is the thing that damages your relationship with God. It drives a wedge. And so part of the Christian life is to grow in ever-increasing sinlessness. But John's a realist, so he knows the reality is even as you are growing and you're learning and you're you're fighting sin, there are going to be moments in your life where you're going to blow it, where you're just going to fall flat on your face, where you're going to step in it in a major way. And when that happens, what do you do? John says, you have an advocate. You have a friend. You have a mediator. The Greek word is the word parakletos or paraclete. It means called alongside. It's a word that describes anybody who is summoned to the assistance of another. That's why often in the New Testament it's translated helper. So in John chapter 14, Jesus uses this word paraclete as the title for the Holy Spirit. And he says, John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, a paraclete, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Jesus says, another paraclete, meaning I am the first paraclete. And when I go to be with the Father, I'm gonna send you another one. And then John picks up on that and he declares Jesus is the paraclete in your life. He's the advocate. But when John uses the word to describe Jesus, there's another important aspect to it because the word comes from the courtroom setting. So it's a word that describes someone who speaks up in your defense. It's a word that describes someone who stands up and advocates for you when you can't advocate for yourself. Have you ever had someone in your life speak up for you when you couldn't speak up for yourself? You know what? I think that's one of the best feelings in the world. A friend, someone who knows you really well, or your spouse, and they just stand up for you. Imagine you walk into a room, and when you walk into the room, you realize someone has just said something really negative about you. They've slandered you in some way. And you step into the room and suddenly, before you can say a word, someone who knows you really well, they step forward, they stand up and they say, that is wrong. I know her. She's not like that at all. In fact, she's just the opposite. She's noble and good. How would that feel? You'd be like, yeah, right? (laughs) Preach it, sister, right? You know, now think about this. This is what Jesus does for you. When you blow it, when you stumble, when you fall on your face, Jesus steps forward and he speaks up on your behalf. River West, is there anything that could give you more assurance in your relationship with God than that? Amazing. But Jesus is not only the one who speaks up for you when you sin, Jesus is actually the one who did something about your sin. And that's why God gives us this second word, 
propitiation. Will you look at verse 2 with me? Because God says, not only is Jesus your advocate, he is the propitiation for your sins. Now, sometimes I wish when I was reading the Bible that certain words would get translated using English words that we're familiar with, right? Words that we use in our everyday sort of lingo. But in this situation, I'm actually thankful that John chose the word propitiation, and I'm thankful that in our English translation, they kept this translation of the word. And here's why. Because it's a clue to me that whatever John is talking about, it's so important and it's so specific that we need a word that only describes this one thing. And there are times in the Christian church where we need to learn the big words, the words that matter. And this is one of those times. I want everyone in our church to master the word propitiation. I want you to use it today at lunch with someone, okay? Even if you use it out of context, just practice saying it. Don't do that. Here's the definition. Please listen carefully. This is gospel truth. Propitiation means the turning away of wrath by an acceptable offering. It means that the full penalty, the full punishment for sin is met through the sacrifice of a substitute. Sin is paid for. My sin. And your sin, the full punishment is paid for. And John says, who is the propitiation for your sins? Jesus Christ. The word carries the idea of satisfaction. Jesus Christ, by his death on a cross, his sacrifice, satisfied God's holiness. And he turned away his righteous wrath from sinners. The wrath that should have been poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that should have fallen on sinners fell on Jesus, the righteous. Now, typically at this point, people, people object because we don't, this, this is language we're not used to. And it's, and it's hard on our modern sensibilities. And we think, well, wait a minute. Isn't God a God of love? What's, why are we talking about wrath now? And why are we talking about judgment? And if God is loving, wh- why, does God need, why does God need to punish sin? Can't God just forgive sin? Just sort of let it go, right? And sometimes we think if God is loving, that would be the, that would be the loving thing to do, right? But I can prove to you that we don't even really believe that. That makes no sense. And actually, that is not really even a good thing to do. Imagine you're sitting at a stop sign in a brand new car that you just bought with your hard-earned money. You saved and saved and saved, and then you went down and you bought that Hyundai Sonata or whatever, and you're sitting there at the stop sign and suddenly 
someone does that thing where they wanna turn right so they come up beside you too close and their rear view mirror drags along the side of your brand new car. Okay? And then you're sitting there and you know what you're thinking? Someone's gonna pay for this. Someone's gonna pay for this, right? Someone has to. Now look, you could get out of the car and you could say to that person, don't worry about it. I forgive you. It's okay. Just drive on. You would be a rare human being, by the way, if you did that. But can I tell you something? If you did that, someone's still paying for the damage. Who's paying for it? You are. That's all propitiation is. See, propitiation is not Jesus the loving standing before God the just and saying, please don't punish. Propitiation is God the loving sending Jesus to pay for human sin. That's what John said. John chapter four, verse 10. Do you remember it? I'll put it up on the screen. Here's what he said. This is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. And River West, can I tell you, if you don't, until you really embrace this, you won't have assurance before God because you'll always wrestle with the sin of your life until you understand Jesus paid it all for that sin. Have you ever paid attention to what happens in your heart right at the moment, just after you've done something really dumb, really sinful. Just think about this for a minute. Have you ever paid attention? What happens in that split second in your heart and your head right after that moment where you've just blown it? You blew your top, you raised your voice, you, you said something gossipy or slanderous about someone you love and you just absolutely step in it. And usually there's a whole bunch of things that happen immediately in your heart and in your head. Sometimes we try to minimize it. Oh, that wasn't that big of a deal, but in your, you know, oh. sometimes we try to justify it. Well, you know, he said this to me, so I said that to him. Sometimes you try to, you know, blame shift. Sometimes you try to tell yourself it wasn't really that big of a deal. And, but a lot of times you actually pound yourself. You just beat yourself up. And you think, I've got to pay for this. I've got to pay for this. I've got to pay for this. And you just pound, pound, pound your negative self. Like, you are such a jerk. You're such a loser. God couldn't possibly love you. And there's all this stuff that goes on in your heart. But can I tell you something? More important than what's happening in your heart in that moment is what's happening in heaven in that moment. Because right in that split second, in that moment where you blow it and you're confessing your sin, do you know what happens? Jesus stands up and he begins to advocate. And do you know what he says? He doesn't stand before the father and say, she's not really sinful. No, he says she is a sinner, but do you know what? And then he holds out the holes in his hands 
And he says, I paid for that sin. She's, she's righteous. She has my righteousness. And here's the problem. If you don't understand what's happening in heaven, then what happens in your heart is going to be really far disconnected from the truth of the gospel. Amen? You will start to think things and feel things and say things to yourself that Jesus does not agree with because Jesus is standing before the Father with the holes in his hands that he took to pay to be the propitiation for your sin. And brother and sister, you can have assurance before God because of that. Hallelujah. You can walk in confidence. My relationship with God is solid, not because of me, but because of Jesus. He's the advocate. He's the propitiation. But there's one more thing. He's the perfect example that you can imitate. We look back, 1 John chapter 2. Let me show you what John means by the word walk. Here's what he said. Verse 5, part B. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That is Jesus. So what John really points our attention to at the end of this is how did Jesus walk? That word walk for the ancient Israelites was a figure of speech. It described kind of the way you live your life. The ancients thought of life as a journey and you were on some kind of a path. You were on one path or another. And so to, to describe your life as a walk was to describe the trajectory of your life, the direction of your life. How are you living? Where are you headed? And John says, one of the ways that you can know that your relationship with Jesus is real is that your walk starts to look like his walk. And John says, Jesus lived this life as, a, as an example for us that we can imitate. And he walked this earth and he interacted with people and he spoke and he listened and he loved and he treated people in a certain way. And the point of it was to lift up a model that we can imitate. And John says, that's how, that's how you can know if you're actually in Christ. Are you beginning to imitate the way that Jesus lived, right? Scientists are discovering that the way that we learn when we're babies is through imitation, Mimicking. Did you know this? So babies are like the ultimate people watchers. You don't know this, but when I was praying for Finn and Kellen, they were just looking at me. They were just studying me, right? And that's what babies do. They watch you and then they imitate you. Now, sometimes when you're watching someone with a baby, you would think it's the other way around, right? Because the way they talk, it's like, the, I think that adult's imitating the baby. But most of the time, what's happening is a baby is watching us, and then they start learning, and they learn through mimicking. This is why babies know to pick up a toy phone and put it to their ear, right? If you wanted to raise a weird child, every time you're in the presence of your child, take a cheese grater and start talking to it, and you'll raise an odd child, right? Because babies are watching you, and then they start imitating what you do. And then God says, so I'm going to send my son into the world, and he's going to walk this life, and he's going to give you an example to mimic. 
Isn't that amazing? This is why imitation is all over the New Testament. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He said, the only reason I would want you to imitate me is because I'm trying to imitate Jesus. And ultimately he would say, you need to imitate Jesus. Imitate him. First Peter chapter two, Peter said, he was talking to the church about how to suffer in the world. And he said, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Imitate Jesus. Men, Paul wrote to husbands in Ephesians 5, and he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Brothers, can you imagine what would happen in our church family if we just obeyed that verse? (laughs) If we just loved our wives with sacrificial love that we learned by watching Jesus lay down his life for the church, how powerful it would be. Imitation. So beautiful. And And the question becomes, how am I doing? Am I imitating Jesus? Do I talk like Jesus? Am I learning how to pray like Jesus? Do I treat people the way Jesus treated people? Am I loving like Jesus was loving? That's the the main thing that Jesus modeled was how to to love other people. And in the very next verse, John's going to talk about that very thing. Come back next week. He's going to say, the key to obeying Jesus is to learn how to love, right? That's the commandment that I care most about. Love one another. But first John says, do you want to know how to love people well? Imitate Jesus. And what will happen is, as you follow Jesus by his grace, because he's taking care of your sin, you're going to become more and more like Jesus, and you're going to experience greater and greater assurance in your Christian life. And that will change the world, River West. Change the world. So this morning, we're going to go to the table. And what's going to happen is we're going to come to realize that these three words, advocate, propitiation, and and the walk of Christ, they converge at the table. Because what's going to happen in a moment, you're going to come to the table and you're going to have the bread and the cup and you'll sit and you'll realize one of the purposes of this moment in my life is to remind me that Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord who's in the presence of the Father right now speaking on my behalf. And he paid for my sin. He's the propitiation for my sins. And also at the cross, he gave me an example of true love. And so this morning, after you get the bread and the cup and you sit and you're holding the elements, just pray about those things, reflect on what you've heard. And then I'll come back up in a moment and I'll pray for us and we'll eat and drink together. Will you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for the wisdom that's there. Thank you, Lord, that you have taken care of everything so that we can have a relationship with you, and you've done it through Jesus. 
You paid for sin. You took care of sin. And even in our ongoing struggle as people living in a broken world, Jesus, you speak up for us in our relationship with our Father. And so we thank you for it, Lord. My prayer this morning as we leave this place is that we would begin to imitate Christ. How he spoke, how he thought, how he prayed, how he loved others. Lord, how we pray that in our church, the people of this church would become more and more like Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Because we know that that will impact our world. And that's what we want, Lord. So we pray for it in faith. And we pray for it together. In the precious name of Jesus, everybody said, amen.